Um, well, good morning, and it's, uh, it's good to be talking about uh, something slightly different, I guess, um, a topical sermon this morning. Uh, so normally we'll do systematic exposition, working our way through a book of the Bible or a section of a book of the Bible, um, but from time to time it's worth uh, tackling something that's topical. And, um, and you may think this is a strange topic. Um, this, is a, uh, this is a sermon about preaching. We're preaching about preaching. It sounds a little bit circular. Um, but, uh, but I guess we're taking the opportunity uh, with the, I don't know what we call it, the, the launch or the inauguration of this pulpit, um, to talk more profoundly about what it represents in the life of our church. So that's what we're doing this morning. Um, I'm going to pray and we'll get to it. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the Word of God, that you are God speaking, that you are the self-revelation, definitive, final, the final and perfect Word. And so thank you that when we see you by your Spirit, through your Word, the Scriptures, so we are seeing God himself. And thank you that that enlivens us. It brings life and light. And so would you do that even in this next few moments, uh, as you do it for us, as you do it for our children gathered in toddlers and kids central. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I guess it's marginally less weird than, than preaching a sermon ab about a pulpit. I'm, I've, I've tried to resist preaching a sermon about pulpits. I, I think it would be hard to preach a sermon about that. You could give a whole talk, but it wouldn't be a sermon. It wouldn't be an exposition from Scripture. Um, but I do need to say that um, I think all, my way, all the way through, I've think, been thinking of this as a, a lectern. I discovered something this week uh, that would be inappropriate to call it a lectern. So lectern comes from um, the Latin word, the root of it means to read. And so the lectern would have been the thing off on the side, which the lay person, you know, not the highly qualified holy minister person, the lay person was allowed to do the reading from, the scripture reading, or they would be able to lead the church in prayer from the lectern on the side. And, um, and so that's not what this is. This is not uh, a lectern. It's not just for reading. Um, and this is the place where we all gather, whether we're ordained or not ordained. It's the reading of the Word of God, prayers from here. But it is the place of speaking the Word of God. The word pulpit means platform. That's what, a, that's what this is. It's a platform. It's a stage for the Word of God to do its work. Um, the Word of God, when it's spoken, right from the days of Mount Sinai, has been done from an elevated place. So we're kind of the inverse today. Um, but the point being, it's elevated so that it could be seen and it can be heard. And I guess that's what lecture theaters are designed to do, even though they uh, do it the opposite way around. Um, but more importantly, um, when you say that something is from the pulpit, we don't just mean from the piece of furniture. Uh, we mean, I guess it's a synecdoche. You remember what a synecdoche is? So uh, an example of that is where the part represents the whole. Yesterday... Unati uh, gave her hand in marriage to David. It wasn't gruesome. Don't worry, it's all fine. She's still all intact, right? A hand representing the whole. The hand representing her will in saying, I will, I do, uh, give myself to you in marriage. And so similarly, uh, this is just a piece of furniture, right? But when you say that something is from the pulpit, uh, we're saying it carries the weight of the Word of God. Um, it represents what's going on from this place. It is a platform for His Word speaking to us. And so I guess in, um, in, in launching the pulpit today, whatever, whatever we're calling it, uh, it's appropriate to preach about preaching. 
That is what is going to be going on from this place. Uh, so I've got a few points on your handout uh, if you'd like to scribble down some notes. We're going to range into various parts of the scriptures um, as you would do with a topical talk. Uh, first up, preaching is about Jesus taking center stage. Preaching is about Jesus taking center stage. Uh, one of my favorite passages of scripture was the one that I spoke on yesterday at David Ununati's wedding, Philippians 2, uh, chapter 5, uh, Philippians 2 and verse 5 onwards. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we've been looking at that journey that Jesus took in Hebrews, the journey of him coming down and then him being raised and, and him ascending. Um, and all of it to say in the language of Philippians 2 is that God has placed Jesus center stage. That's going to be the reason why we should place him center stage. God in the first instance has placed him center stage because he lowered himself, he humbled himself to death on the cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the best that he could give him which is his name, Yahweh. Jesus Christ is Lord, which is the personal name of God. That's not to say that Jesus, uh, the Son of God, at any time was never not Yahweh. He, he has always been Yahweh. But God exalting him and bestowing on him that name is the public declaration that Jesus is Yahweh. It's the announcement. He's saying, I am putting my son center stage. You may not have known that he is center stage, but now because of the journey that he has taken, I am declaring it to be so. God has put Jesus center stage. And therefore, everything else in the, in the whole of history must be in the light of that. That's the declaration by God, and therefore that needs to be what we are proclaiming. God has given us this message, and so we announce it. We proclaim it. Uh, the bigger the news, the louder you shout something, Right? And this is the biggest news that there is. When the preacher stands up, their job description is to herald the Lord Jesus Christ as being center stage. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in those two quotes from the first and second letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 22. For Jews demand signs, Greek seeks wisdom. That's what they want preached. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified, says Paul. And then he says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And so you ask yourself and you ask Paul, well, well, well are you preaching Christ crucified or are you preaching Jesus Christ as Lord? And the answer is yes. Those two are inseparable. Jesus is Lord and Savior. He is the redeeming Lord. That, that sums up the essence of Jesus. That is who is being placed center stage. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and Redeemer. 
And the word that Paul uses uh, for preaching uh, back in uh, verse 23 and in one, uh, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5 is the same word in the Greek. It's the word that's translated, it's the word caruso, uh, it's translated preach or proclaim. It means to declare or to herald. Uh, the Old Testament herald would be the one who brings the news from the king and he would go up to that elevated place from where he could be seen and heard, and he would shout it out. He would make the news publicly known. That was what the Old Testament prophets were doing. They were announcing the news from God. And that is precisely what preaching does. It heralds what God has already done. It places center stage the one whom God has already placed on center stage. And that will mean two things practically for us in the life of our church and any church which I guess chases after Jesus, uh, it means firstly Christ-centered preaching. Christ-centered preaching. Uh, the Bible's one story. It's all God's plan to redeem a people for Himself out of their sin and for Jesus and through Jesus. And you could break the whole Bible down like this. Uh, the Old Testament prepares the way for Jesus. The Gospels describe the events around Jesus. And the rest of the New Testament looks back on and reflects on and applies Jesus. And so any Bible preaching is going to be Christ-centered preaching. Uh, Jesus gave us the key to unlocking the whole of Scripture, every single verse of Scripture. He's given us the key. He told those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, who were confused as to who this guy was next to him, and uh, they didn't recognize him as being Jesus. And he says to them, you foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Okay, you don't recognize me because you haven't understood what the prophets said. Was it not necessary for the Christ, this is Luke 24 verse 25 onwards by the way, um, in case you want to read it up later. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to come in his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in the Scriptures. Which is, is to say, every, every verse in the Old Testament, uh, with Moses and the prophets, it's a way of summing up the whole of the Old Testament. Uh, every single verse in there was written about himself. Was there to help people to be seeing who Jesus was, to recognize him for who he was. And so that means when we're preaching the Old Testament... Uh, the application punchline is always going to be pointing us to Jesus in some way, either creating a longing or seeing a fulfillment, or often both. And so a helpful question that we should ask ourselves anytime we're preaching from the Old Testament is, well, how is this sermon different from what you would hear in a synagogue? Because the same passages are preached in synagogues. It's their scriptures. It's the Jewish Old Testament. The Old Testament is the Jewish scriptures. And we need to be saying, well, how is our Christian sermon different from that one? And the answer is, it points to the fulfillment that is there in the Lord Jesus. That is there now, and that is there not yet. There is still some that lies ahead. That's the Old Testament. When we're preaching the Gospels, I guess it's a little bit more obvious. Uh, they're obviously Jesus-centered. And so as we preach the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we want to see Jesus walking off the pages of Scripture, because it's eyewitness testimony. It's His words, it's His actions, it's the events of His life. 
And then when we're preaching uh, the letters of the New Testament, well, Paul has just summed up his ministry for us. We preach Christ crucified. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the summary of his ministry. In a way, it's the summary of everything that he writes and everything that the other New Testament authors write. They write concerning Jesus, the crucified Lord. Which means, for genuine spirituality, for your walk with Jesus, the Christian walk, for the church, for the church in relation to the world, everything can be reduced to and flows from Jesus Christ, the crucified Lord. It is all grounded in Christ. That doesn't mean that we preach in a, in a simplistic way. It doesn't mean that every Sunday you're going to come and hear Jesus Christ died for your sins. Put in that way, there are a million different facets to Jesus Christ, the crucified Lord. And, and that's what we should see. There should be a diamond in every passage and there's a diamond in every sermon for us to take away. It will never be simplistic or boring. It should never be. So no matter where you're preaching from, all roads in Scripture lead to Christ and all lines of application to our lives lead from Christ. Uh, we're about Christ-centered preaching. Now, the way that makes sure that we do that in biblical proportion is expository preaching, secondly. Expository preaching is, is taking the meaning that is in a text and expounding it. It is bringing it out and putting it on display, exposing the truth that is there. Uh, treasure doesn't mean, need to be loaded into a sermon by any preacher. Uh, the treasure is there in the text, and the aim of preaching is to bring that out and to show it off to best effect. Uh, that means that our sermons will be text-driven. Our starting point is what the Word of God has laid down. We want to hear what he has to say. We're careful not to impose an interpretation on the text. And one of the core convictions that we would hold if we come from a, a Reformed background, a, a Protestant background, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. So one of the things you often find, one of the, kind of the, the arguments that can be thrown at you is say, well, especially on, a, I guess, a tricky ethical issue or a kind of controversial doctrinal issue, people will often throw the line at you, well, that's your interpretation, right? And the reality is that it should never be my interpretation or the preacher's interpretation. Scripture lays down a very solid framework for how it should be interpreted. It gives us the rules by which it is to be understood. And the faithful preacher's work is to make sure that it's not his interpretation. As much as possible, it is the Bible's understanding of how that passage is located within the bigger story. And the key, therefore, to unlocking the meaning in any text is context. That is the anchor for meaning. Uh, there are different types of context that you need to take really seriously. There's the historical context, uh, the situation that it was written into, who was writing, to whom, what was their situation, what were their struggles, and therefore what was the help that the author was giving them. So like uh, the letter to Hebrews, which we said is a sermon to Hebrews, initially you might think, well, this is written to Jewish background believers, and there's a case for that. It's grounded in the Jewish story and applying it to show how Jesus is superior in every way. But then, uh, recently, we've just seen, but there's a quite basic description given 
of the design and the operation of the tabernacle. And there's a clue in there to say, well, it's not just given to Jewish Christians, because you wouldn't have needed to give that basic description to them. It's also to Gentile Christians. And then that opens up your understanding of who the audience was and what the medicine is that's being dispensed in the letter. We need to understand the historical context. Uh, then we also need to understand the literary context of any verse or any passage of Scripture. And um, so, I've got a particularly deep book here. Um, it's actually got pictures, so I'm not going to show you the pictures because that would give you know, picture tells a thousand words, right? But um, but just like you would never do this. Uh, okay, just to take out this page, and then let's just take out let's just take out this section over here. Let's see what. Let's see what this says, okay. I'd like to help Sally get the plastic bag out of her throat. That could be a horror. <laughs> it, it, could, it could be some nasty torture thing going on. Um, you don't know because you've ripped that verse or you've ripped that page out of the context of the whole. And, um, and, and that gives you a clue, right? But the Bible doesn't have pictures in it. Keep the beach clean. It's about... Sally the seal, and we want to be careful. You cannot really know what that sentence means unless you know how it sits within the piece of literature on the page, uh, the book as a whole. Sorry if that's hurt your feelings about Jojo gave me permission. The, the book had been previously damaged, so it's fine. The literary context. And then there's a salvation historical context as well. And this is to say, how does this passage fit within the unfolding story of the whole scripture narrative of Jesus redeeming a people for himself, uh, God redeeming a people for himself through the Lord Jesus Christ? So there's the historical, the literary, the salvation historical context. And they do provide a, an anchor for interpretation of any text. Without those layers of context, uh, you could take that verse, Sally and, and the plastic bag, and, and you could make it mean anything. You could, you could fit it into any number of stories. We're not at liberty to do that. And we know in the history of our country, some of you will have heard me give this illustration before, but we know the danger and the tragedy and how prone we are to doing that, to ripping not just verses, but like whole stories from Scripture out of context. In the life of our country, we saw that done with the Exodus story, the story of the liberation of God's people out of their slavery to Egypt. And so if you go to the Fuertreka monument, that is a monument to the Afrikaner people are the heirs, inheritors, and final fulfillment of that story. They are those who were in slavery in the colony and had to undertake this Exodus-like journey out of that slavery into the promised land, a land of freedom, a space for themselves. So that was one appropriation of that story, an interpretation of that story. But then those on the opposite side of the, of the apartheid struggle, the liberation struggle, well, also appropriated the same story to themselves to say, no, we are the ones who are under oppression, who are in need of liberation. And so we are identifying as the heirs of that particular story. Well, it can't be both, can it? Well, in fact, it's neither. And the answer is that both of those ignore the Bible context from the Exodus story. The context is the promises that were given to Abraham uh, way before. And the heirs of the promises are not any particular nation, state, or nationality, or people group. Uh, they are firstly the Lord Jesus. 
he is the seed of Abraham. And then everybody linked to him, which is the church today, are the heirs of the Exodus story. We have come to the final Exodus in the Lord Jesus. So we've said what uh, preaching is about. Um, it, it is, in those quotes from Paul, it's also evident negatively what it should not be about. Um, it should not be about the preacher. Uh, preaching should not be preacher-centered. Uh, Paul says to Corinthians 4 verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. Uh, that sentence defines the, the proper relationship between the preacher and the message. Uh, the message is that Jesus is Lord. The messenger, the proclaimer, well, their role, says Paul, is as a servant for Jesus' sake. A celebrity, it was kind of celebrity preachers, and people were wanting to put them up on a pedestal in the church in Corinth. Uh, you know, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos. And Paul's writing to say, no, you've got that completely wrong. You're trying to put the preacher center stage um, and make them famous and put all of their oratorical skill on display, which was something that was highly prized in the surrounding Greek culture. You know, what is prized in our culture? Well, those are going to be some of the things we need to flag and say, we need to be careful that we're not prizing preachers for that. You know, people prize being entertained. They prize being ministered to in a therapeutic kind of way. You know, that's not to diminish the role of the preacher. The role of the preacher is important. So Philip uh, Phillips Brooks uh, delivered a series of lectures to Yale University in the 1800s. And he gave a definition which is kind of quite famous now of what preaching is. Uh, preaching is the communication of truth through personality. Communication of truth through personality. That is to say that, that preaching doesn't bypass the preacher. It goes through a person, through personality. Um, I will preach a passage differently to what Brian would do if he stands up and preaches that particular passage because we're different personalities. But primarily it is about the truth that is to be declared. Uh, the, the reason that we're preacher... Uh, I beg your pardon. The reason that we're not preacher-centered is that ironically when you center on the preacher and you think because they're impressive or there's power in, in the way that they deliver things, it robs the place of power that is genuinely there because it dilutes the focus on Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 17. For Christ, says Paul, did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, the thing that was prized, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, because you've put the focus in the wrong place. And therefore, he says, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, Therefore we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. If anyone, if it, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Um, Great preaching is not going to connect with everybody. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. But woe betide any preacher who leaves people blinded in whom God is at work. And that happens when you manipulate and you distort. And that can happen in very subtle ways. 
can happen in the, in the, in the life of a church. And, and this is where you're open to come to me and to come to the, to the elders and to say, yeah, in the things that are said, in the things that aren't said, in the way things that are said, there are messages that can be delivered. And we need to make sure that there's no subtle manipulation or cunning that is happening, but that there is faithfulness. Yes, there is personality, but it is truth through personality that we want. The aim of preaching is that everyone should see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that is our desire and our prayer. So may we always turn the spotlight onto Him. Uh, John Calvin, the reformer, said, For St. Paul does not mean that one should just make a parade here or that a man should show off so that everyone applauds him and says, Oh, well spoken. Oh, what breadth of learning. Oh, what a subtle mind. All that is besides the point. When a man has climbed up into the pulpit, is it so that he may be seen from afar and that he may be preeminent? Not at all. It is that God may speak to us by the mouth of a man. So we're not preacher-centered, and nor are we to be pew-centered. Uh, I guess when I say pew-centered, I mean audience-centered. Uh, we're not firstly about those of us who are sitting in the pew, and I'm sitting in the pew every week just as much as you are. It is about Jesus. It is about His identity and His mission, Him being Lord and Savior. The gospel is not firstly about us. It's dangerous to think that. It's tempting to think that because it is such good news for those who receive it by faith. But it is not firstly about us. It is firstly about Jesus and who He is and what He has done. It invites a response. It necessitates a response, the response of faith, as we grab hold of who He is. But it is not firstly about us. And so preaching is not therapy, although it has a healing effect in various ways. It is not self-help or motivational speaking, although it has a motivating effect and it is helpful. Rather, we preach Christ crucified as Lord. And when we do that, somebody put it this way, um, that, that good preaching has the effect of comforting the disturbed and disturbing the comfortable. And I think that's valuable. In any given week, and certainly over a period of time, and preaching Christ does that. Uh, if you are weighed down and bogged down, if you are disturbed, then it brings comfort. Literally, God comes alongside you to strengthen you through His Word. But if you are comfortable and in cruise mode, well, then you are in the kinds of danger that Hebrews warns us against. And so there is a word of warning that comes, maybe a word of rebuke, as Jesus is held up. Um, I guess for me, one thing that I struggle with on that um, is that, is that in certain, if, you, if you're working your way through the book of Hebrews, for example, there are, there are warning sections and then there are doctrine sections and you know, there's kind of the balance of doctrine and there's application. And sometimes it's, it's heartwarming and sometimes it's kind of shocking to our hearts. And the temptation when there's a shocking section is to bring the heartwarming aspect towards the end of like, okay, we've heard the shock, but, but don't worry about that. And I kind of wrestle with that as a preacher. And you can tell me if you think I, I kind of imbalance and get that wrong. I think that's where the other elements of the service can often help. Because they, we need to hear the shock. We mustn't 
we mustn't bring the heartwarming parts so that they can just kind of neutralize each other and we leave thinking, oh, well, that's all fine. I didn't need to worry about the warning so much, right? And vice versa. And I think that is where the other elements of the service have helped. And I'm always amazed at how God ordains the different elements, even the songs and the, and the leading, to bring a more full gospel message without the message of this passage being diluted. So we're not pew-centered. Um, secondly, uh, it is all of this as his word fills our lives. In other words, as Jesus takes center stage in our lives. Preaching puts Jesus center stage so that he can take center stage in our lives. Uh, Cotton Mather, who was a Puritan, he said, The grand design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the hearts of men. That's a really helpful phrase, isn't it? So that each week, Jesus, I mean, Jesus is on the throne. Uh, he remains on the throne. He's never not going to be on the throne. But in terms of how I live with him, he has come off the throne. I've, I've removed him off the throne. I put myself on the throne. Through circumstances, through my own sin, uh, he, it does, he no longer has rule and dominion in my life in the way that he should. And the aim of preaching is to restore the rule and dominion of Jesus in your life and your life and your life and mine uh, every single week. Uh, it's just being realistic about sin and about the potential for what holding Jesus up can do in our lives. Uh, that could be the case for the unbeliever who walks in. Jesus is not on the throne of our lives. And so we want Jesus to be declared as on the throne. It can happen for the believer just as much. There may be rooms in our lives, parts of our lives, where our attitude to Jesus effectively says you're not allowed in that room. You're not allowed to be on the throne in that regard. Christ-centered preaching has both the authority and the ability to go there. Uh, I don't have that authority. Jesus, uh, no preacher has that authority. But Christ-centered preaching can go there. We saw it back in Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Uh, the word of God can open up those doors so that Jesus takes center stage in every area. And it has that authority because as the words of the man are what are hitting your eardrums, well, so our understanding theologically is that it is the words of God that are hitting the spiritual eardrums. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. And we also thank God continually because, this is Paul speaking about the Thessalonians, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. That's astonishing understanding, isn't it? That even as they heard Paul, so they were hearing God speaking. So again, John Calvin says, It is certain that if we come to church, we shall not hear only a mortal man speaking, but we shall feel, even by God's secret power, that God is speaking to our souls, that He is the teacher. He so touches us that the human voice enters into us and so profits us that we are refreshed and nourished by it. Thirdly, uh, Jesus being center stage uh, fills our lives, 
puts him center stage in our lives. It also puts him center stage in our ministry. It fuels our ministry. And I'll try and uh, abbreviate what I was going to say here. But we know Ephesians 4. It's a, it's a, it's a verse that we, uh, a passage of scripture that we come to regularly as a church to understand the dynamics of the way that God's word works amongst us to produce the effect that it does. Uh, Ephesians 4 it gives a picture of Jesus who's the risen, ascended, the victorious Savior, and he's now king, and he's ascended up to the throne, and he gives the victory spoils to his people in the form of people. He gives the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. They are, they are the wordy gifts. They are those who, who, who declare the word in various forms. And the aim of those people is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, looking like Jesus in our maturity. The end result is maturity, a, a body of people united and who together represent the Lord Jesus faithfully. It's, a, it's, a, it's the picture of my maturity depends on our maturity together. That's the end result that we're working towards. Every part of the body working to build itself up to maturity. But you don't jump from verse 11 to verse 13. You don't jump from preaching, the declaring of the Word of God, straight to the body working to mature itself. You first get verse 12, which is that the aim of preaching is to fuel every, every member ministry. Every person equipped for the work of ministry. What is the work of ministry? It is anything that has the effect, fueled by the gospel, of building up the body. Anything that you do as a Christian that builds up the body. Not least, verse 15, speaking the truth in love to one another. And so this word ministry is not, is not reserved. That was one of the great things that they rebelled against and reclaimed in the Reformation. It's not reserved for, for people who stand up here week by week. Word ministry is done by us collectively. That is the circle that uh, um, the more and more it is done places Jesus center stage. That is our role in preaching that word. Christ crucified, Christ as Lord. There are so many ways in your life that I have no access to where you've lost sight of the fact that Jesus is Lord, where you've shut the doors of your heart to him. And the throne and dominion needs to be restored. But I don't have insight. And I don't, I'm not able to penetrate there. And there'd be loads of ways in which you've forgotten what it means that Christ has been crucified. And therefore that you have been welcomed and you belong. I can say what I can say on a Sunday. But we need each other who are in each other's lives. And Paul says that that is the proper place of preaching. It is to prepare all of us to do that work of speaking the truth in love. So that we're built up. So that Jesus takes center stage in each of our lives. What does all of that feel like? You can read 2 Corinthians, uh, the life of the word minister, and that's all of us. It can feel like you're a jar of clay. That's how he describes it. Uh, the jar of clay feels fragile. It's kind of almost disposable. Uh, you will feel that. He talks about being um, hard-pressed, but not crushed. It is hard to do to keep putting Jesus center stage in your life and in the lives of others. And yet he says the, the reality of that is because the jar is fragile and seemingly weak. So the treasure that is on the inside shines 
all the more brightly and is all the more precious. What does this pulpit represent? Back in the Reformation, if you walked into a church building, uh, you would find center stage the altar. It sent a very powerful message about what was central, what people in those churches would get bright-faced over, which was they would get bright-faced over the sacraments, the altar representing the sacrifice of Jesus, but a distorted version of that story, wherein what God is pleased with is our act of sacrificing week by week in the Mass, the body and the blood of Jesus, so that He is pleased with our efforts and our merits. And what was recaptured in the Reformation is that the altar was moved off to the side. It's the Lord's table. It's still fundamental. It is a visible word of the gospel, which we are to still celebrate. But what went center stage was the pulpit, because that is where God was speaking from. That is the word under which we all sit and to which we all submit. Uh, my hope is that, um, yeah, I don't know. My hope is that this... Um, this piece of furniture, maybe this piece of furniture will last another hundred years. I know the steel bit will. I don't know about the wood. The wood's already lasted a hundred years. Let's see if it could last <clears throat> another hundred years. But listen to the words of Paul in terms of what the pulpit does, meaning the word ministry. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Why don't I pray? Father, we praise you that you who raised our Lord Jesus will also raise up with Jesus and bring into your presence all those who have died holding on to him. We thank you for placing him center stage, which is his dessert. Lord, we thank you that you have placed him center stage in our lives if we are those who have come to Jesus by faith. And we pray for our ministry together, word ministry of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus the one who is Lord. We pray that that ministry amongst us would continue to build us up. Uh, Lord, even as our flesh wastes away, uh, even as these weak vessels are exposed for all our fragility, uh, would you bring forth something that is uh, intransient, something which is eternal, and something which pleases you and brings glory and honor to Jesus' name. Amen.